0: The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler This is Volume 1 The Prehistoric World Episode 10 The Spread of Homo Sapiens Part 1 Previously on the History of the World podcast, we have followed the journey of Homo sapiens evolution from its origin as an ape-like animal to the modern human being. We have watched the technological developments and the advancing intelligence that has led to our ability to think about and plan projects to enable us to have the superior skills and tools needed to survive in the ever-changing climate. We have seen how our communication skills have become so developed that the tribal groups that we used to live in have been able to operate as one, cooperating for the good of the group and enabling us to protect and maintain the health of the elderly and injured members of our groups. We have seen our inquisitiveness leading to artistic and cultural development. Now we are on the cusp of our journey to colonise the world armed with all of our developmental progress. In order to understand Homo sapiens' expansion and our ultimate colonisation of the globe, we need to be able to plot some courses of migration according to the evidence to hand. You may remember that we tried to do this with Homo erectus way back in the fourth episode of this podcast. Originally, we discovered that the first Homo erectus remains were discovered in places very far from the base of our story in Africa, because the first discoveries made were in modern day Indonesia and China. We had to look for evidence of the route by examining subsequent discoveries. This time, we are going to take a different approach, as there are significantly more discoveries to discuss, and we can pick and choose where we go in order to tell a more time-based story. One of the first places you could visit after leaving Africa would be the Arabian Peninsula via the Sinai Peninsula, so we can potentially plot the first course of migration if the dates and artefacts tie into the story nicely. Obviously, the benefits of a visual aid are going to be significant, so I intend to post some of my very basic looking but nonetheless attractive and informative maps onto the Facebook page and the History of the World podcast blog. The mainstream recent thought relating to an out-of-Africa theory suggests that the wave of migration out of the African continent would have happened around 120,000 to 70,000 years ago. However, if we look at an archaeological site at Mount Carmel in Israel, we can establish that an upper jawbone discovered in the Mislia cave in 2002, predates that timeline. In 2018, a date around 185,000 years ago was attributed to the jawbone, which is believed to have belonged to an anatomically modern human and would therefore be supposed to belong to Homo sapiens. What I believe that we have to remember is, that the emergence of early modern Homo sapiens anywhere in the world has been pushed back so we shouldn't be too surprised if this date has been offered. We also have this annoying desire to make everything sound so definite when categorizing hominin fossils. We want to say that this fossil belongs to Homo sapiens 100% and Homo sapiens migrated out of Africa on this date 100% The reality is that Homo sapiens slowly evolved and would have happily migrated in and out of Africa with no regard for our modern continental labels and names. There would not have been a border control between Africa and Asia. It is likely that archaic versions of Homo sapiens ventured in and out of Africa and this population that appears to have reached Israel may well have gone back to Africa or simply died out without going any further. We must take an objective and open-minded view of events and not try to pigeonhole them. However, this does represent one of the earliest Homo sapiens migrations out of Africa and therefore is a significant and interesting discovery. The The Arabian Arabian Peninsula. Peninsula So the migration of Homo sapiens was not the result of a prehistoric African convention of individuals who decided to make a deliberate journey of discovery out of Africa. It was natural. It was small populations of humans looking for a patch of land which was full of resource for which they could live a comfortable existence. It was likely also to be many different small populations of humans doing this over a course of many tens of thousands of years. There are a great many sites in Israel and Lebanon, which are two countries that sit side by side on the east bank of the Mediterranean Sea, which offer a lot of clues as to the migratory behaviour and presence of hominins in this area of the world. The last time we mentioned Israel in this podcast series, we were discussing the most iconic Neanderthal discovery at the Kibara cave which was dated to 60,000 years ago. This is extremely significant to the story of Homo sapiens as Homo sapiens would have certainly been migrating through these areas. The two species would have crossed paths. This would have been a very popular area for settlement for many tens of thousands of years and by more than one species of hominin. Mount Carmel is a coastal mountain range in northern Israel, and this seems to have been a very attractive spot for hominins. The range and its local coastline is a place where many caves can be found that are suitable for shelter and in close proximity to the sea and the fertile lands which attract many different forms of wildlife. Tabern Cave was thought to have been in use since 500,000 years ago, which would suggest that it would have been occupied by something like Homo heidelbergensis. Deliberate fire is believed to have been something going on from at least 350,000 years ago, and the remains of a 120,000 year old female that resembles Homo neanderthalensis was also discovered there. In the nearby Kafseh cave at the bottom of Mount Precipice, we can discover more facts relating to the anatomically modern humans who occupied the site, maybe some 92,000 years ago. The bodies of some of the dead were clearly being deliberately and ceremonially buried. This is very clearly demonstrated with the burial of a juvenile individual who had suffered a severe injury to the head at a very young age and survived a number of years before dying. Experts believe that the juvenile could have only survived for so long with a very definite degree of community care and the burial itself was carefully done with the body being laid with its arms crossed across its chest and the replacement of deer antlers in the grave. The other thing very notable about Kafseh Cave is the evidence of ochre being used on people who were being buried. Ochre was also being used to decorate shell beads. The use of ochre was mentioned in the previous podcast by populations living at the very south of the African continent. So this kind of artistic use of naturally occurring coloured sand and clay compounds was a widespread human activity. The use of shell beads being widespread is maybe not as surprising as we believe that older populations of humans and maybe even Homo erectus was decorating seashells. What this demonstrates is that the human ability for abstract thought had really advanced since Homo heidelbergensis appears to have made way for Homo neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens. The planning and execution of building effective compound tools. The use of materials for artistic purposes as opposed to practical. Then, the ceremonial style of human burial that demonstrates the human awareness of their own mortality and maybe a spiritual belief in some form of afterlife. Just as we supposed that the traditional difference between Australopithecines and humans was that the humans were expert tool makers, a lot of people cite the artistic nature of Homo sapiens as being a major difference between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, with Neanderthals believed not to create art. Once again though, We will explore art and ritual with much more focus in a future podcast. For now, let's concentrate on Homo sapiens' onward journey. Modern Humans and Neanderthals Going back to the observation that I initially made, it is a commonly accepted fact that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals crossed paths as they both lived simultaneously. Many have traditionally referred to it being a case of Neanderthals being in Europe, the Homo sapiens came along and killed them all and that was the end of that. Science has shown that the reality is that it is a far more complex relationship than that. DNA studies have shown us that all non-African modern humans that are alive today have more in common with Neanderthals than African modern humans do. The most likely reason for this, with all the current evidence to hand, is that those populations of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals who crossed paths in Israel and the surrounding area were interbreeding. If this is true, then our traditional view of ourselves as an advanced species compared to the rough old Neanderthals is a completely pompous modern view. Homo sapiens would have had absolutely no qualms whatsoever about having sex with Neanderthals. Why would a population of intelligent Homo sapiens not breed with a compatible cousin? It makes much more sense than the unnatural urge to inbreed within your own population. We are unsure as to whether Homo sapiens and Neanderthals actually lived side by side in Israel. It could very well be that different populations of each species occupied sites in that area at different times. This doesn't discount the very real possibility of their paths crossing and if they did, they would have found it quite reasonable to have sex and procreate if DNA studies are anything to go by. Heading East Having said all of this, Homo sapiens obviously found it would be easier to initially head eastwards from the Arabian Peninsula than to head into Europe, which was already occupied by Neanderthals. The current fossil record supports this. There isn't much in the fossil record to suggest that this happened much before 60,000 years ago, even though we now possibly believe that Homo sapiens have been regularly visiting an inhabitation of the area around Israel, possibly as long ago as 200,000 years. So if Homo sapiens headed east, where exactly did they go? And who did they encounter? Heading east from Arabia, you will initially head in the direction of India and China. Last time we discussed India and China was way back in the Homo erectus and Paleolithic tools podcasts. Madrasian tool cultures thought to be associated with a type of Homo erectus, would have been around a million and a half years previous. And then beyond that lies the wonders of Yan Mao man, Peking man and Java man, all believed to have been a form of Homo erectus and all believed to have been in that time frame of a million and a half years ago and probably up to half a million years ago. However, It has been a long time between the stories of episodes 4 and 5 and the story in this podcast, and things have changed. There are enough widely dispersed fossils to suggest that there were probably pockets of Homo erectus populations still being somewhat nomadic, as were all the human species, we believe, and bumping into other species such as Homo heidelbergensis and later on Homo neanderthalensis, and Homo sapiens, and I feel sure that there was a similar level of interbreeding, which may explain some of the mysterious fossils that have been found in Ethiopia, for example, dating to the last one million years and showing physical traits of both Homo erectus and Homo habilis. The abundance of fossils in Indonesia that have been discovered show a definite long-term existence of Homo erectus that dates right up until. 250,000 years ago at least. But before we get to Indonesia in the last 60,000 years, it appears very likely that Homo sapiens would have encountered a previously unmentioned type of human that is going to be significant to these particular populations where their legacy still exists to this day. Denisovans Homo sapiens on their journey west encountered another group of archaic humans who we might have believed were Neanderthals had it not been for the science of DNA analysis. In the Siberian mountains and on the eastern migratory route of Homo sapiens, there is a cave called Denisova Cave. Since the 1980s, four distinct fossils have been discovered. However, They are just teeth and digit bones, which are really not a lot to go by. They would have certainly been categorised, possibly as Neanderthal. But through DNA analysis, we have determined not only are they a previously unknown species, but that they play a significant role in the current human population of the world. As of this podcast they are yet to have a confirmed binomial species name so we can call them Denisovans as that is the general term to describe them. Through the analysis of DNA we can suggest that the Denisovans are closely related to Neanderthals and would have likely had the same common ancestor in Homo heidelbergensis. It is believed that Neanderthals and Denisovans diverged from each other after Neanderthals diverged from Homo sapiens. We really cannot say a great deal about the Denisovans and their appearance and lifestyle due to the lack of fossil evidence, but we can be pretty sure that when migrating Homo sapiens stumbled across them, once again they had sex with them. The DNA evidence exists to this very day in some living human populations just like the Neanderthals. Using DNA analysis, we can further plot the migrations of humans in this manner. So we don't just have the observational evidence of archaeology, but we now have a sequencing code that offers the code cracker some definite insight into our migrations because we can identify where those living humans with Denisovan DNA in their genetic code have ended up today. Oceania Oceania. Oceania. The biggest island in Oceania is the island of Australia. If we look on the map, we will see that Australia is not an easy place to get to. It is right out at sea and we haven't seen any migration out to such an isolated place in all of this podcast series so far. The only sea crossings that we have had to consider are the Babel mandeb crossing of the Red Sea the Strait of Gibraltar crossing of the Mediterranean Sea and the crossing of the English Channel to reach Patefield and Boxgrove on the island of Great Britain In each of these cases we have relied upon an Ice Age glaciation absorbing the water of the oceans into the polar ice caps and reducing the sea levels to make crossings easier Great Britain would have certainly been connected by a land bridge to continental Europe and the crossings at Babel mandeb and the Strait of Gibraltar would have been doable, maybe with a little bit of swimming, rafting or drifting. Crossing to Australia is a different prospect altogether. This is a vast and open expanse of water, which would have certainly required a good degree of forethought before taking the risk. We know that they made it. Mujed Baby is a rock shelter in the Northern Territory of Australia and it contains evidence of stone tools and Palaeolithic art which dates to 65,000 years ago. This is clearly evidence of human presence. So this could be the story of our migration. Anatomically modern humans migrated eastwards from the Levant or Eastern Mediterranean sometime before 80,000 years ago. They likely reached southern China by 80,000 years ago, as is probably evident from the modern human teeth discovered in the Fuan cave. At some point along the journey, they encountered the Denisovans, cousins of the Neanderthals, and interbred with them, therefore adding Denisovan DNA to their genome. Then, a population would have headed southeast towards modern Indonesia in exactly the same way that we believe Homo erectus probably did some one and a half million years previous. It's what they did when they reached Indonesia that is interesting to speculate about. Firstly, we have to recognize that the climate was a lot colder around 65,000 years ago than it is today. Not necessarily as cold as in the last glacial maximum, but certainly cold enough to create large polar ice caps and glaciers that absorbed a lot of the water of the ocean, significantly dropping the sea levels. This would have meant that a lot of the Indonesian islands would have been joined by land bridges, forming a large land mass peninsula, which we refer to as Sunda. Sunda would have consumed the islands of Sumatra, Java and Borneo, enabling humans land access to an area much nearer to Australia than you would initially believe by looking at a modern map. From Java, you can access the island of Bali with ease, but beyond that, things start getting complicated. Wallacea The complicated area is a biogeographical area called Wallacea. The area is made up of islands which are predominantly Part of modern day Indonesia, with exceptions. This is part of the journey, which is an absolute quiz for paleoanthropologists trying to work out how humans migrated from Asia to Oceania over 65,000 years ago. We know the sea levels were higher, but the sheer fact that Wallacea is a biogeographical area is very significant here. Wallacea is named after an English naturalist called Alfred Russell Wallace, who was actually born in the Welsh village of Clan in Monmouthshire in 1823. As a child and eventually as a young adult, Wallace's family struggled to make ends meet and as such he lived in many different areas of England and Wales and struggled to settle down anywhere for any length of time. Wallace was clearly quite academic. And eventually he would find his interest was in the outdoor world where he initially started collecting and studying insects. Wallace would initially explore South America looking for different species in a bid to find evolutionary patterns from the end of the 1840s and into the 1850s. This is something that Charles Darwin had done in the 1830s on his HMS Beagle voyages. Wallace would then explore the East Indies which is pretty much modern Malaysia, Indonesia and the Philippines, which is the area that our current podcast has led us to also. Wallace recognised that the animals that inhabited islands that are now known to be part of Sunda were a lot different to those to the east. This would lead him to announce a zoological boundary called the Wallace Line where animals to the west would be Asiatic in origin and animals to the east would be distinct. This demonstrates that if animals could not migrate across to Wallacea, the name given to the islands west of the Wallace line, then human migration to this area must have involved some form of sea travel. The other side of Wallacea, you reach what is known as the Lydica line, which is a similar biogeographical boundary named after another English naturalist called Richard Lydica, born in 1849. Once you cross the Lydica line, the animals you find are distinct to the Ice Age landmass called Sahul, which linked Australia, New Guinea and Tasmania. So we can expect to find things like marsupials and eucalyptus, which you won't find on the Asiatic side of the Wallace line. So to put it in simple terms, during the Ice Age you could travel by land across the landmass of Sunda to modern islands such as Bali and Borneo before hitting the Wallace line. Then you are faced with a whole load of islands called Wallaceia, which you have to cross before reaching the Lydica line and the Ice Age landmass of Sahul, modern Australia and New Guinea. Crossing Wallacea There are two potential routes. One is from Borneo to the Sulu Islands via the island of Sulawesi but then you are probably faced with a long sea journey like we've not seen before to be able to get to the next islands. We will call this route number one. The other, which we will call route number two, is to go as far as Bali before making short water crossings like we have seen before to Lombok, Sumboa, and then Flores. However, we have to now consider Flores as a very significant island of Wallacea due to a paleoanthropological discovery which we cannot possibly ignore. In 2003, A research team working in the Liang Bua cave on the island of Flores made an astonishing discovery. They found a near complete skeleton of an adult female hominin which dates to 80,000 years ago. Now this would be all well and good if it were a Homo sapiens making its way from Asia across the islands to Australia and ending up at Majebebe Rock Shelter 65,000 years ago our story would be nice and straightforward. The problem is that this adult female is believed to have only stood at three and a half feet tall. However, with it only being one skeleton, you could say that there is a chance that the female was a deformed or diseased Homo sapiens. However, some of the wrist bones do not show the modern adaptations that can be found in Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis species they much more resemble the bones of Homo erectus. We have not seen a fully grown hominin of this size since around 2 million years ago in Africa as Homo habilis and in Western Asia as Homo georgicus. So if this is a genuine species of hominin, it is around 6,000 miles and 2 million years out of place. Paleoanthropologists have proposed a new species called Homo floresiensis and with the dating of other artefacts at Liangbua Cave they suggest that it was alive between 100,000 and 50,000 years ago. Is there a reason why there could be a small hominin living on this remote island? Well it is not completely out of the question that a species of Homo erectus could have made it to this island many thousands of years previously and settled on the island. The fact that this population became isolated on Flores with limited food resources and limited predation meant that there was an evolutionary advantage to having a smaller size. The smaller hominins would have needed to consume less energy to survive, an obvious advantage. Even if this sounds bizarre, this kind of evolution can be seen in other species of animals that are isolated to islands and are allowed to become smaller by a lack of predators. This is called island dwarfism and also exists on the island of Flores by its unique population of the now extinct stegodon elephants which also became significantly smaller on Flores. As of yet no one has been able to completely dismiss the possibility that this mysterious population of humans evolved into a unique human over thousands of years completely isolated from others. Assuming that Homo floresiensis did exist on the island of Flores this also opens up the question as to whether Homo sapiens met them and further to that Were modern Homo sapiens in some way responsible for their disappearance? Certainly, on the face of it, Homo floresiensis or the Hobbit, as it is more affectionately known, wouldn't have stood a chance against the larger Homo sapiens if there was a competition for resources such as food. However, there is no evidence of such a meeting or such a competition. So we will have to wait for more discoveries to be made. Reaching Australia Time is against us so we need to move on and try to establish exactly how Homo Sapiens eventually reached Australia. Through route number 2 Homo Sapiens would have left Flores and likely moved on to Timor. We reach a major question mark at Timor where it looks as though a major sea crossing would be required. So we are a little bit stuck via route number one at the Sula Islands and route number two at Timor. To go any further than these two locations, we would have to cross the Weber Line. The Weber Line is yet another biogeographical line which falls between the Wallace Line and the Lydica Line and represents the midpoint between Asiatic and Australasian wildlife. This time the line is named after a German zoologist called Max Wilhelm Kohl Weber, born 1852. Crossing the Weber line would have taken something very significant, the likes that we have not seen before in the History of the World podcast. Swimming for that kind of distance is not likely at all as we are probably looking at sea crossings of perhaps 40 miles or more. To be able to create A population of people once you had reached Australia You would have had to have transported a population over in the first place To enable you to successfully procreate and colonise There is no evidence of water vessel construction That would have taken populations over Bamboo rafts have been speculated But I certainly wouldn't want to make that kind of crossing on a bamboo raft And rate my chances of living to tell the story There is so much speculation about the crossing from raft building to tsunamis transporting people overseas something I can't really get my head around. I have my own theory. I could be completely wrong. It's really just a case of weighing up probabilities. So here we go. I'm going to choose route number two. Homo sapiens managed to make their way to Timor via a series of land bridges and short water crossings which I believe they were capable of doing as I believe that Hominin successfully negotiated the Strait of Gibraltar, a similar crossing. On their way to Timor they likely encountered Homo Floresiensis and outcompeted it, likely causing its extinction. This isn't necessarily by bludgeoning its much smaller cousin to death, but more likely taking all the food resources for themselves and pushing Homo floresiensis out of the ecosystem. Once successfully on the island of Timor, Homo sapiens had to negotiate the 250 mile crossing to Australia. However, this crossing of the Timor Sea has quite a shallow seabed, Around 200 metres deep and even though the sea levels may have only dropped by 120 metres maximum during the last glacial maximum, there would have surely been more land mass exposed by any water level drop and the more the drop the more land exposed and the shorter the crossings. The Australian coastline would have extended by anything up to... Fifty and a hundred miles further into the Timor Sea, and there would have been a substantial amount of islands exposed in between Timor and the extended Australian coastline. so to look at a two hundred and fifty mile crossing would be ignorant of the difference in the geography of the area at the time. Islands in the Timor Sea would have been visible. I do not believe humans would have set off without any visible destination. If humans were successfully procreating on Timor, then the population would have been getting larger and the resources would have been getting scarcer. Therefore, in what I would guess to be a somewhat tribal society, the more successful tribes would get their hands on the resources, while the less successful face starvation or moving on. This would provide the motivation to look towards these distant and dangerous islands, I wouldn't put it past the tribes to plant seeds of there being a spiritual calling. Something along the lines of the people who successfully reached that island in the distance can expect eternal peace or something. To make the journey, it is not unreasonable for us to go back over the discoveries we have made during this podcast series about the human ability to work wood using stone tools that we know have been excavated on Flores for this period. Humans very likely had the knowledge of the creation of adhesives using tree tar to help construct wooden rafts which may have been capable of carrying multiple passengers either by paddling or drifting across the sea to the nearest island. Bear in mind that there would have been over 30 generations of family every thousands of years so there may well have been many failed attempts before a success. The reason why there is no evidence of rafts would be that once at the destination where resources may be plentiful, the only use for the raft would be to burn it. I could have got this story completely wrong, but it is my story based on probabilities and in the absence of any other widely accepted scientific explanation. Settling Australia Well, this podcast has already gone on A lot longer than originally intended, but the human migratory story into Australia is by far the most mysterious and interesting. What happened when humans reached Australia? Well, they remained somewhat isolated and continued their evolution quite independently. The site at Majed Bebe in the Northern Territory shows evidence of stone tools and advanced stone working alongside the use of ochre and evidence of early artwork. Humans spread around the whole of the Australian island fairly quickly as archaeological sites exist in the far reaches of the southwest and southeast of the island, dating to at least 40,000 years ago. At Lake Mungo in New South Wales, there appears to be a complex cremation and burial practices that involves the body being covered with ochre, but this body is thought to be no more than 25,000 years old. These people would have been the forefathers of modern Aboriginal Australians who still have a very strong cultural identity in Australia to this very day. Next time we'll be looking at the story of how humans occupied Japan for the first time and crossed into the Americas. We'll also find out what happened when homo sapiens went into europe where the neanderthals were already alive i'd like to thank you for listening to the podcast i'd like to remind you that if you're listening to the podcast on itunes or through apple podcasts to rate and review the podcast if you want to send me a message That would excite me the most. If you take the time to write me a message, I'll be very appreciative. The email address is historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com and the Facebook group is a great place to interact. We'll carry on this story of humans settling the world this time next week. Be sure to tune in again. The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the History of the website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail dot com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook. Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.